Well, welcome everybody to downtown Harbor Church. If it's your first time, my name is John. I'm the lead pastor around here. Appreciate you guys coming on out. One of the exciting things to come out of COVID, I guess if you could say that, is that we do have a lot of new people here and a lot of new faces. And the difficult thing with new faces is that I can't really see them. I think so much of you, I just see from here up. And so every week, I think I recognize eyes and I kind of give you the old, hey, good to see you again. And if I've said that to you and, and it's your first time here, I apologize. But uh, we do appreciate you guys coming on out um, to our at-home audience when you're watching this, when it actually goes you know, live later on. Welcome to you guys too. We appreciate you checking us out. So today, we are kicking off, as Adam was saying, this brand new series that we're calling the road ahead, where over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be taking a look at the life of Paul, the journey that Paul went on. We're going to be taking a look at his experiences and some of the people that he met along the way. Now, the reason we're doing this is because we like Paul around here. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this, particularly if you've been at this church uh, a long time, but we pretty much quote every single quote Paul every single week. We just think he's got a lot of wisdom to offer. But one of my concerns is that if, if we didn't know Paul the person, then he might just be some guy who writes quotes that we put up on a screen. And I thought that, um, I thought that if we were going to be able to put a deeper richness into the scripture, if we were going to give it a different and more deeper understanding, then the best thing that we could do would begin to go along his journey with him. And so when it comes to this journey, we really need to just start at the beginning. I want to take you back to where we first meet Paul when he first kind of enters the scene in the New Testament. Now, the story that we're going to look at today is perhaps one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. And I would also make an argument that this particular story that we're looking at today is maybe one of the top five famous stories of all stories ever told. This account that we're going to look at today is the basis for many of the phrases that we just use in passing every single day, like, I've seen the light, I was blind, now I see. That is all from this story that we're going to look at today. So where does the story begin for this giant of the fake, where, uh, faith? Where does he make his debut? Well, interestingly enough, Paul's journey begins with a murder. So let me kind of set the scene for you so you know where all of this takes place. A few months after Jesus's crucifixion, all right? So we're not talking years. We're probably talking three, five, six months afterwards. A guy named Stephen, who is one of the early disciples. He's not one of the first 12. He's in sort of the next team. He gets arrested. In fact, he gets arrested by the same crew that arrested Jesus, and they arrest him on, on charges of blasphemy, but he's really just preaching the gospel. And so Stephen gets hauled into court, and when he's at his trial, he gives his own defense. And what Stephen delivers that day is one of the most brilliant speeches in all of Scripture. It's found in Acts chapter 7, like 1 through 53, if you want to read it yourself later on. But in this brilliant speech, Stephen essentially says that Jesus is the culmination of God's plan throughout history, that everything that God has done has ended with Jesus Christ. And then he lobs this charge against the crowd saying that, and you all killed him. You killed the Messiah. You killed God's chosen one. Well, needless to say, that was not well-received. Take a look at their reaction. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed to him, dragged him out of the city, and began 
to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. And Saul approved of their killing him. So we meet our man, Paul, who at this time is still going by his Hebrew name, Saul. And that was a commonplace thing. They would have Hebrew names and they would have Greek and Roman names. And so today you're going to read Saul and I'm going to often interchange Saul with Paul. So don't get confused when I do that. Now, our translation here leads us to believe that Saul was kind of a coat boy, sort of like, here, hold my coat. We're going to do some real work over here. Would you help us out with that? But theologians would tell us that this detail here about the coats being laid before Paul is actually a really important detail. It lets us know that Paul was actually the one that organized this whole thing, that Paul is actually the one that orchestrated this entire stoning that this laying of the coats before him, well, that was a sign of respect. Now, interestingly enough, this word approved here. Uh, In the original Greek, it really means more like Paul got pleasure in their killing of Stephen. Paul loved it. He enjoyed seeing Christians suffer and die. So Stephen's death here was really just the beginning because now that opened the floodgates. Persecution broke out everywhere. And Saul was the one who was leading the charge. Now, Scripture tells us that Saul would go house to house. And that's because churches met in homes at that time. So Saul would go church to church, house to house, arresting men and women. He didn't care what you were. He was going to arrest you and throw you in prison. Now, later in Paul's life, he would refer back to this time. Look at his own account of this time in his life. Authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death, continues. Many times, I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. You know, you read this, and it's difficult to imagine that this is the guy that wrote the scripture from your wedding. You know, love is patient, love is kind. This is the man. This is how it all started. So if you're like me, you read this account and you're just, you're left, you know, asking one question. Why? Paul, what is up? I mean, what did the Christians ever do to you? I mean, they're a very peaceful people. They're loving. They love their neighbors themselves. They serve each other. They're very moral. You know, their Messiah, Jesus, he holds them to an incredibly demanding standard. They love their spouses. They paid their taxes. What's the problem? Why are you doing this? Why are you trying to stop this? The answer to this why is actually a complicated um, answer. It's multifaceted. And I think that's often why people will just say, well, he hated Christians. And that's why he did this. But ultimately, Paul's motivation for trying to stop Christianity. His motivation for jailing Christians and persecuting Christians and killing Christians really came down to his religion. Let me explain it to you. Paul was raised to believe in his sect of Judaism. He was raised to believe that he, the Jewish people at that time, that he, through his own religious efforts, could be made right with God. He would later go on to say that that he was righteous before God, that he was in right standing before God because of a couple of reasons. Number one, because he was circumcised. 
Every Jewish boy had to be circumcised. On the eighth day, he would say, I was circumcised exactly when you were supposed to get circumcised. He would also say that he was a pure-blooded Jew. My mom was Jewish. My dad was Jewish. My grandparents were Jewish. I got a whole family tree. I could, we have never once mixed with any other cultures. I'm a pure-blooded Jew. Additionally, he would argue that he's a Pharisee. And the Pharisees, that particular sect of Judaism, was the most obedient to the law. In fact, when it comes to fulfilling the law, all the food laws, all the cleansing laws, Paul would say, I did it all. I was faultless in that regard. And the last reason that he believed that he had earned his right standing with God, particularly in this case, is because he was zealously persecuting the church. Now, this word zeal inside zealously, that word says it all to a Jewish person back at that time. Because they believed that this idea of zeal was using violence to root out sin and disobedience. And when you used zeal to root out the sin and disobedience, that made you right before God. And in Paul's mind, there was no greater sin and disobedience than Christianity. Why? Because you got Christians over there claiming that your religion, that your works, they're meaningless. That it's all about your faith in Christ, and that and that alone made you right with God. It's a problem for Paul. They also claim that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. Well, that's sinful, and that must be stopped. And so Paul took pleasure in beginning to systematically exterminate Christians. Continues. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. What a powerful line. Murder was the very air that this man breathed. Continues. He went to the high priest. Now at this time, this is Caiaphas. For those of you who are familiar with Jesus's story, this would be the, the high priest that was in charge of Jesus's trial. So Paul goes to the high priest, Caiaphas, and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, a town about 150 miles away. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, and we'll get to that in a second, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So this word, the way that you see here, at this time, the Jesus movement was not called Christianity. That wouldn't be till sometime later. At this point, it was still known as the way. Now, theologians kind of debate as, as to why. Some would say, because Christianity really is much more than the religion. It's a way of life. Others would say it might be based on the fact that Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. So let me explain to you what's going on here so we don't miss this. Essentially, what Paul is doing is he's going to the leading high priest, and he goes, I need you to give me letters of introduction so that when I go into this huge city of Damascus, I can hand these letters to the synagogue leaders there, and they'll understand what's going on when I start hauling off Jewish people in chains, dragging them back to Jerusalem. Story continues. Now, as he neared Damascus, which is about a six-day journey for him, um, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, for those of us who have read the story, we know that this is Jesus. But at this point, Paul has no clue who this is. 
Now, being a student of scripture as he was, he knew that any voice that was coming out of heaven was some sort of divine messenger. And this divine messenger here used his names twice. That's what theologians would call a double knock. And any time in scripture when God, Jesus does this too, but any time in the Old Testament when God would use someone's name twice, that was to communicate deep emotion. So Paul knew something major was going on, but he didn't know exactly what yet. Let's drill down real quick on the question that Jesus poses. He says, why do you persecute me? Now, this word why says so much because he's not looking for an answer here. What he's saying here is he's communicating the futility of Paul's efforts. Jesus himself said that he would build the church and when Jesus used the word church, it was this word ecclesia, which means a gathering of people. It wasn't a building. It was a movement of people. And Jesus says that not even the gates of hell would prevail against his church. And so in this moment, he's looking at Paul and he goes, what are you, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. Your efforts are futile. You will not and you cannot destroy it. I don't think any of this in this moment dawned on Paul. Some of that would register at a later time. But this does cause Paul to ask what I believe is the most important question of his life. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. In that moment, everything changed. Because everything that Paul thought he knew was flipped upside down. Everything that he thought he understood about the scripture has now just taken on completely new meaning. Because Paul, just hours before, was persecuting people for saying that Jesus was alive. And now Jesus was alive right in front of him. And standing in the glory of heaven, for that matter which means that everything that Jesus taught was true. See, Paul thought he knew God. He thought that he and God were good because he read scripture, because he went to temple. He did all the religious things that he was supposed to do. But in the blinding light of heaven, it became clear. He didn't know God until he knew Jesus. I mean, Paul definitely had a religion, but he didn't have a personal relationship with God. This was a defining moment in his life. What he continued to do, what he always did, trying to work his way to God through his actions and through his religious ceremonies, or in the undeniable presence of Jesus Christ, would he change directions? Would he go in a new way? And would he place his faith in the risen Christ? Well, his next question answers it all. What shall I do, Lord? Jesus, I'm yours. And with this act of submission, Paul is saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say that you are. It's undeniable. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. You died on that cross, but here you are, alive, right in front of me. Your message, which I tried to stop, is true. You are the way. 
and the truth and the life. So what do you want me to do? Jesus said, now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Jesus only gives him the next step. And honestly, that's so much how our relationship is with God. He really only gives us the next thing to do. Rarely, if ever, and I would say never, does God lay out your entire life's plan to you. We couldn't handle that. Paul couldn't either. So Jesus just gives him the very next step. Don't worry about tomorrow. I'll give you enough grace for today. So Paul, who's now blinded from the light, is led by the hand, by his traveling companions, into the city of Damascus. So we get a little bit of a scene change now. It says this, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord. Okay, I love that. Yes, Lord. Okay, he's in his house, minding his own business, basically making an omelet, and he hears his name being called, and he's like, hey, what's up? What do you need? Okay, he doesn't like, doesn't miss a beat, doesn't scream, doesn't yell, not a problem. How can I help you? Okay, Jesus says, Here's what I want you to do. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, okay? You're familiar with that is? It's kind of like federal. You bang it right on sunrise over the train tracks. You're going to go to Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, that's you, he would say, come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So Ananias is listening to Jesus He's taking all this in. He's trying to make sure he's got all the details down as to what he's supposed to do. And, and then he responds to Jesus. And he goes, Lord, uh, I have heard many reports about this man and uh, all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Basically, he's like, Jesus, here's the thing. I understand you're God, okay? I'm not saying you're not God. I'm just not sure you've done your research on this particular guy, okay? Because I don't, I don't know if you're aware. I know you got a lot going on. I don't know if you're aware, but this particular guy, like the only one you've mentioned, this particular guy is the one who's going around and killing Christians. You know, I'm one of them. And so I'm just not sure we've landed on the, the guy that we're supposed to, you know, be going to reach out. And Jesus is like, would you go? Please, killing me, literally, okay? Go. He said, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. In other words, to the entire world. And here's what I love so much about Jesus calling Saul his chosen instrument. It shows that there's a surgical precision to the decision, that, that there's a reason that heaven said, we're gonna use Paul for this. It's so that the whole world could know through Paul that no one, no one is too far gone for God. That no one is beyond the reach of Jesus's love. So Ananias went, he goes to the house and he entered it. Now, think about the drama of this moment right here. Think about the tension of this moment, right? I mean, this is real life we're reading right here. It's not just some story that's made up. What a test of faith for Ananias. I mean, to truly trust that Jesus was right and this guy, Paul, Saul, 
It's not going to kill him. I mean, the best analogy I was thinking of this week would have been like going to some Jewish person way back in the day and going, look, here's the deal. I need you to go knock on the door of Joseph Mengele. I need you to go visit Heinrich Himmler. They're, they're Jewish now. You could trust them now. This is arguably one of the most underrated acts of faith in all of Scripture. And so the Christian goes to the Christian killer's house. Now, placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, wow, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, immediately, it says, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up, and he was baptized. To which I think a lot of us might go, whoa, whoa, Saul, baptized already? I mean, I think you're moving a little too, too fast here. I mean, it was just three days ago. Now you're a Christian. Now you're getting baptized. I mean, you're making us look bad, right? Like, you got to wait as long as possible before you get baptized. We all know this. You got to drag your feet. I mean, sure, Jesus commanded every single one of us to be baptized. But like, come on, you put that off as long as possible. And he's like, no, 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 no. Listen, dunk me. Let's do it. I've seen Jesus. He's changed my life forever. And I want to tell the world what he's done for me. So get some water and put me in it. So Saul gets baptized and he's off to the races to serve the Lord. Take a look. We read that at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. Now, this idea of preaching that we read here, this is not sort of what we're used to, okay? Paul's not on a stage with like a TV giving you three ways that you can be Jesus in the workplace. That's sounding like a great sermon though. Somebody write that down, okay? Um, that's not what he's doing here. The best thing that we can sort of picture in our minds when we read this idea of Paul preaching is like the idea of a town crier, okay? Ringing a bell, publicly proclaiming that Israel's hope has been fulfilled that the crucified Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah. He would say, the one that we've been praying for, folks, the one that we've been waiting for for hundreds, thousands of years, he's here and he's alive. Now, less than a week ago, Paul was persecuting people for saying these exact words. And now he's basically screaming it from the rooftops. Now, needless to say, this was a tad bit confusing for people who were witnessing this. I mean, we've got an account of it. It said all that heard him were surprised and wondered. They go, this is the man who beat and killed his followers in Jerusalem? He came here to tie the followers in chains and take them to the head religious leaders. They're like, this is a mirage? Because that looks like him. But like, what the heck is going on around here? I mean, for us, it would be like looking at, you know, Osama bin Laden waving an American flag, taking the Pledge of Allegiance. It's just shocking. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, it says, Saul grew more and more powerful. But this was a different kind of power. This wasn't a worldly power. This is not the power of violence, it was not the power through intimidation. It was not power through political connections, all things that Saul had in the past. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is Paul finally having an understanding of the true 
nature of Scripture, God's plan for this world. And with this new power and with this new understanding of Scripture, he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Paul, who was a brilliant scholar of the Old Testament, quite frankly, probably knew it better than anybody back then, and I would argue anybody ever since. He is now using the scripture that he studied his whole life to point everybody towards Jesus Christ. All the prophecies, all the patterns, all the stories, every single thing that has taken place since the Garden of Eden, Paul is now saying it all points to Jesus. It's an incredible story. Now, as my Nana would once famously say, Get those happy shoes off, okay? Get those happy shoes off. Because here's the thing. Soon, Paul would begin to feel the wrath of the very movement that he started. Because the Jews who had once cheered him on in his crusade against the Christians now realize that Paul's a problem. We got a real problem on our hands with this guy, Paul. And so they conspire with each other to kill him. Now, thankfully, he found out about this plan, and he was able to escape. And we learned through his own account that Paul made his way south. He went into Arabia, and for three years, he would tell us, he actually learned everything that he knew from God, directly studying from God himself. Now, when he was done in those three years in Arabia, he began to travel north, back to Jerusalem. And we read this account. It says, when he came to Jerusalem... He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. This always bothers me. And every time I read this, it just, ah, it's just, it's, you know, this reaction would make some people turn their back on Jesus. I mean, think about Paul for a second. It's like, I've been a Christian for three years. I've, I've been serving Jesus for three years. I've endured multiple death threats for Jesus. And now you don't accept me? This is, this is the love of Jesus? Forget. Forget. I mean, has this ever been your experience? I don't know what's gone on in your life, but I mean, was there a point when you became a Christian and those in your life found out that you became a Christian and their only reaction was, oh, you're a Christian now. Oh, right. Now I've seen it all. Now I've seen everything. You're sure, 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 sure. See, I believe that the Holy Spirit would use this particular interaction to inspire Paul to later write 2 Corinthians 5.17. For if a man belongs to Christ, he's a new person. The old life is gone. New life has begun. That because of what Christ did on that cross, Paul, and we for that matter, could say, you know what? That was my past. Yeah, absolutely. That was who I was back then. I'm not denying it. I'm not trying to run from it. But that's not me now. That's just not who I am. And it's all because of Jesus. Now, thankfully, Paul was introduced to a man named Barnabas. And Barnabas would introduce Paul to the original apostles, the OGs. We're talking Peter. We're talking James. And they believed him. 
and they accepted him. So Saul stayed with them. And he moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And from that day forward, he set his eyes on the road ahead. And for the next 30 years of his life, through beatings, arrests, shipwrecks, sickness, everything, Paul would seek to spread the name of Jesus to every corner of the world. So what's our practical? What do you do with a message like this? Now, if it's your first time here at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So Paul, in his own words, would actually tell us what the takeaway would be, if you would, from his Damascus Road experience, what the practical application is of his experience on that road that day. Take a look at what he says. Now, he wrote this letter to a young pastor named Timothy. And in the letter, he wrote, How true it is, and how I long that everyone should know it, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I was the greatest of them all. But God had mercy on me. And here's why, he would say, so that Christ could use me as an example to show everyone how patient he is, even with the worst sinners, so that others will realize that they too can have everlasting life. In other words, everything that Jesus Christ did on that road to Damascus some 2,000 years ago was for you. That God saved Paul for your sake. And I believe what Paul would want you to know from that experience is that whoever you are and whatever you've got going on in your life, that you can be made new. Now, I don't know what's going on in your life, okay? I don't know what mistakes you've made. I don't know what society has said about you. I don't know what your family says about you. I don't know what maybe even the local church has made you feel about yourself. But if you are someone who believes that you are too far gone for God, Paul would disagree with you. Paul would tell you that no matter who you are or what you've done, Jesus Christ died for you. And because of that, you can be made a new person and you can have everlasting life. Now, here's the other thing that we learned from this amazing story today. We all learn that we're all saved from something for something. Paul was saved from sin. Paul was saved from a life of murder and hatred and persecution. And he was saved for spreading the gospel, for writing over half of the New Testament. Paul believed, he got baptized, and he went right to work for God. So I think the question for all of us is, what did God save us for? Sure. We've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Some of us have. Sure, we've been saved from our sins. Thank God. But have we ever asked the question that Paul asked? What shall I do, Lord? What do you want me to do, Jesus? For what purpose was I saved? Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to go home and start writing new scripture. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to become some missionary and travel the world. But what this does mean 
is that in some way, in some unique way, God can, will, and wants to use you to impact the world around you. So, are you ready to do something for the one who saved you from something? Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, in light of what Paul has said today, I want to thank you for what you did on that road 2,000 years ago. Because we all are carrying around a lot of baggage. And it hurts. And since the Garden of Eden, Lord, you have desired to have a relationship with us, God. And yet I think so many of us wonder if we can have that relationship. Thank you for what you did through Paul's life, Lord, that we could know that no matter who we are, what we've done, no matter what our family has said about us, no matter what society has said about us, Lord, that the message of Jesus is for everybody. And that because of what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago, that we can know with confidence, should we say yes to Jesus, that that we're good with you, that we are a new person, and that we can have everlasting life. Lord, Paul didn't understand it all that day that he said yes to you. It would take the rest of his life to figure it out. And I pray, Lord, that today we might get to a place where we, we say we don't have to understand it all to believe something. Challenge us today, Lord. Help us to ask also the question, what would you have us do? Because you've all given us a story, Jesus, and we can use that story to change the world around us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.